in the wake of um, the murder of George Floyd, certainly I think there was re-traumatization happening for black Americans. And having gone through, you know, I've seen this movie before, and then a whole set of people kind of saying, oh my God, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, and so I think that even somebody disbelieving your experience could be kind of a trauma. Culture and oppression are not the exact same thing, right? There's a lot of really amazing and beautiful things that cultures do and that they're meant to do. There's also a lot of oppression that lives inside of every single culture. And it's quite possible to be in love with your culture without in love, being in love with some of the oppressive behaviors and tendencies and really having to decouple the oppression, right? But that's a lot of really complicated work because the same people that taught you the culture and the values and the love and the tradition and the beliefs also often taught you the oppression. I'm Dieta, and this is the Culture Road Podcast. We are starting off episode number seven on the topic of trauma in the workplace. And I'm really excited to have this conversation because trauma is one of those really uncomfortable topics that is very heavily present in all of our interactions, whether they're interpersonal, within our families, and definitely in our workplace environments. So I chose this topic because I wanted us to be able to have a space to really understand How does trauma show up in our contemporary workplace environment? What are some of the issues and expectations that managers and leaders are going to need to be aware of? What are some of the skills that we'll need to develop in order to be trauma-informed in our workplace environments? And then what are some of the opportunities for building healthy organizational cultures and structures and processes to make sure that people are experiencing the kind of well-being that they're seeking and have the ability to also make sure that trauma isn't present in their day-to-day work environment. I'm really happy to be joined by a dear friend and colleague, Holly Brittenham, who is also a consultant and who is going to talk to us about some of your experience and help us really unpack this conversation today. So Holly, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Holly, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about who you are and the work that you do. And then I'll ask you to share a little bit about some of your perspective related to trauma and some of the research that you've done to help us explore it a little bit more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yes, I'm Holly Brittingham. I am the founder and president of Septaria Consulting, and I've been in the corporate world for about 25 years, um, doing all sorts of HR-related talent, DE&I, coaching, all sorts of things. Um, And I... I am very interested in trauma from a variety of perspectives, and I've—I want to say I'm not an expert. I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> I, but I, I have done a lot of, of reading, a lot of research, and a lot of reflection on how it impacts us as people yeah. in the workplace and all of that. So, what what is it that was kind of the driver? Maybe we should start off by defining trauma, right? Because it's yeah. one of those words that's really, really heavily used. And I'm glad that you kind of gave an initial disclaimer, right? This is not um, a conversation that's meant to come from mental health experts. Neither one of us position ourselves as that. We're both organizational development practitioners. We both have many years of experience in equity, diversity, and inclusion. And as part of our work, we study 
the sorts of issues and challenges that keep people from fully participating in their workplace experiences and fully flourishing at human levels and in our organizational systems. And that is the place from which we'll talk about trauma today. So I really appreciate the disclaimer that we're not gonna talk about the deep end of the pool trauma. But do you have any other kind of definitional aspects that we should cover? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I'm, I've been fascinated by just how the brain works. And we, we are very early on, relatively speaking, in our understanding of the brain. Um, what I've, I would say it's been about 10 years of sort of the, the neuroscience community starting to go deep. Um, President Obama launched an initiative in 2013, which I think might have been the first time to have this public-private, you know, sponsored at the highest level, to understand the brain. Yeah. And it was it was developed kind of like, okay, we we deconstructed the human genome. Now let's figure out what's going on in the brain. And we know nothing. <laughs> we know a little bit, and what little bit is known. I think is starting to provide some really interesting clues to things. Yeah. Um, I What I've learned in just reading and devouring information about it is that in studying, for example, how do, how do earthworms make meaning? They have like 800 neurons. Human beings have like 100 billion and they still don't know how worms think. So not that we're gonna talk about worms thinking today, but I, I think that I just wanna explain that I think part of Part of the confusion around the word is because it's still so new. But I also think that part of the interest is that there is something very important in it that helps us understand ourselves. Yeah, yeah, I first got into thinking about the brain when uh, unconscious bias work was new in studying um, EDI. Right. And what I love about it is that it helped it helps lower defenses. It helps to say, you know what? If you have bias, you're not morally deficient. Right, right. You're just a human being on the planet right. with a brain that is seeped in what you've been socialized in. Right. Taking that sort of similar thought into trauma, I think what I've learned is that it just helps us. It's a new frame. It's a new way of thinking about things. So you got, you studied trauma you know, professionally, it's an area of interest and you describe it as something that, you know, you pursued like you, like as when you were learning about bias, but also personally, it's been something that's of interest to you. You want to talk a little bit more? About yeah, I, I have family members with um, complex PTSD and that has taken me on a real deep learning journey to understand actually what is trauma. Yeah. Um, and so what I've learned is that it's funny, and probably not so long ago, you said, someone said PTSD, and you think, okay, the, the war hero. Right, right. Shell shot. Right. And then, okay, maybe it's childhood abuse or surviving a natural disaster. Now the categories, um, at least that I know of currently, are there's um, acute trauma, which is what happens if you've experienced a singular event that is traumatizing. There's, um, it's chronic. Yeah. Which that would be like sustained abuse, right? Like over a period of years. Right. And then there's complex trauma, which is varied. It's multiple sources and it's often interpersonal, right? So it's kind of, and what comes to mind for me when we think about EDI are things like microaggressions. Right, right. That's a sustained, prolonged, it could come at you from a variety of different perspectives. 
I think, you know, over the past couple of years, there's a lot of talk about the trauma of COVID. Right. That is a collective trauma. We're all in the storm, but we're in different boats for sure. Different people are experiencing it differently. In the wake of um, the murder of George Floyd, certainly I think there was re-traumatization happening for black Americans. And having gone through, you know, I've seen this movie before, and then a whole set of people kind of saying, oh my God, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, and so I think that even somebody disbelieving your experience could be kind of a trauma. Yeah. Um, The other thing that I've learned is that researchers still don't know why some people develop PTSD and others don't. It's, they don't know. Some people, it it becomes, even if you Google it now, it says it's an emotional response, but going deeper into it, it's actually physiological. Yeah. It's it's your whole body. It's interesting to think about that because that's my understanding of trauma too, and that is that our bodies hold memories and our bodies hold memories that might be from a specific experience at a point in time, but it also has to do with things like generational trauma, right? That has to do with kind of systemic racism or systemic oppression that might actually have negative implications over generations. That's an amazing area of research. The two books I recommend to people, individual trauma and what you talked about, the the embodiment of trauma. So the body keeps the score. Um, by Bessel van der Kolk, if I said it right. And um, yeah, that, how it literally is in your body. Literally. And, and you can be quote unquote triggered, yep. which is another over, overused word, but it's a real thing. Yep. And you can get triggered and suddenly your body is taken over yep. and a part of your unconscious is actually driving. Yep. And your conscious mind is sort of left the station for a minute. So I think at an individual level, that's, I, his work is very useful. I think collectively and um, generational trauma and all of that, um, Resma Menekin, My Grandmother's Hands. Yes, it's a beautiful book, book beautiful. about collective trauma. Right. And how a type of trauma can be shared by a group of people. Okay, so a minute ago, you mentioned bodies being triggered and all of a sudden taken over by, and I can't help but bring up an article that you shared with me recently on Facebook that mentioned Will Smith. And I know everybody's talking about Will Smith and Chris Rock lately, but I really thought that, you know, what you were sharing with me um, was really worth bringing up here because it, uh, it kind of reinforces this idea that trauma shows itself all the time in many forms and oftentimes in people that have been really holding it together, really living a very intentional life yep. for many, many years. And then all of a sudden they do something that is quite out of character. Yeah. Can I share a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, what a flashpoint, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and it's captivated. It's sort of the, the number of dissections of that moment and what happened and what does it mean? I think looking at it, you could see gender, you could see race, you could see status, privilege. I mean, there's so much, you know, encapsulated in that one moment when I, and I was watching it and I, I immediately thought that's a trauma response. Interesting. And because he even looked different. Yeah. Like the, the look on his face when he was, you know, after he hit, the, after he hit Chris Rock, which again, like you yeah. said, he was fuming. It was, it, it was, it was yeah. in, a, in the split second. He started laughing. He, at first he was laughing. Right. 
right? Which is also a traumatic response. Yeah. People laugh, they shake, they cry. There's yeah. so many ways in which people express trauma that we don't often acknowledge at the time. And then immediately it shifted to something else that was much more insidious and it was really, really easy to identify. It, it was, and I think I, violence is not appropriate no matter what. And like, it was wrong of him to haul off and slap Chris Rock for sure. Um, but when I watched that and then I watched the tearful yeah. speech and he just looked like he was unraveling. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, there's so much pain. He looked like somebody in the wake of a PTSD trigger. Yeah. And he looked like somebody who, um, I, I mean, my heart just went out to him. My heart went out to everybody, um, in this situation. I think that there was a lot of, a lot of pain that got amplified. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it, that was a workplace. That was a workplace. They were colleagues, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. um, they are colleagues. So, yeah, I, I think sometimes when there's behavior, maybe as a manager, if you're observing in the workplace, that suddenly makes no sense. Or why is this person who is so brilliant underperforming? Right, right. What is going on? Right. It could very well be trauma. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying all managers should know how to, you know, deal with trauma. That's not their job. <laughs> it's not HR's job either. But I think companies are starting to add this to you know, EAPs are getting trauma informed. Yes. Yes. Right. That sort of thing. Um, plus the, the presence of mindfulness, right. Which is, is known to be a way to regulate right. yeah. your, your emotional response. And that all has to do with the brain. Yep. So it's really interesting to think about this because, you know, I hear when I'm talking to clients, I hear the word trauma come up every single day multiple times from multiple sources. Typically, it's a person who is an individual contributor. It's oftentimes a woman or a person who identifies as BIPOC. And I'm wondering, like, wh where is this coming from? This shared language that is so pervasive everywhere. Do you think that everybody's just learning about it at the same time? Do you think everybody's having a kind of a cathartic moment because of COVID and the rise of the kind of racial equity movement? Like what's happening? Are people overusing it or misusing it? I mean, I think probably all of the above. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think there's a definite, certainly mental health is much more accepted and less stigmatized, yeah. you know, taking care of one's mental health. It used to be, you know, go to a therapist and what's wrong with you? Are yeah, you a yeah. therapist? Now it's, it's considered part of, you know, what, the tools that people have right. to actually empower themselves. Um, I certainly know mental health clinicians who are waiting lists a mile long. It, it's the need is there. I think, and I think with anything, sure, it's used wrongly in, in at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to have a mental health clinician diagnose you. Right. You know, if you have, a, a trauma condition, if you yeah. have PTSD, if you have one of these things, because it's a very specific medical yeah. term. Um, do I think there's generalized trauma? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're all going through a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, I think the other thing too, I would add that I've noticed about this and it's, it's unfortunate is that like anything else and healthcare in particular, there's a disparity in access and 
capability and competency. So a lot of times the mental health profession, and I think it became very pronounced um, summer of 2020 in the aftermath of the racial, the racial justice movements, finding a, a trauma, a racial trauma-informed therapist, yeah. because there is such thing as racialized trauma. Yes, yes, yes. And you can be, you can have therapists who are trauma-informed, but still might not understand what racial trauma is in this country specifically. And you could apply that to all different kinds of things. So I think it's, there's just a lot there and a lot more that needs to be done, but I think it's important. I'm super interested in digging in a little deeper about, you know, understanding like some of the specifics. It doesn't have to be that there's only racialized trauma that we talk about because I know that there's different kinds, but I'd be interested in just unpacking that a little bit more and understanding a little bit more about what that potentially looks like or what how it is that a person could get support for you know dealing with racialized trauma but then also what are some of the workplace practices that are going to be more and more expected as you go forward so the first thing i'm going to do is go to a break so we can talk to our sponsors for a bit and then we'll come right back and pick up on those points This episode is brought to you by Culture Road, a live and on-demand digital learning solution powered by Dietta Jones and Associates. Culture Road is an easy-to-use subscription, delivering fresh content monthly and access to experts to help professionals at all levels thrive in the contemporary workplace. Stay up to date with best practices on diversity, equity, and inclusion and acquire the necessary skills and tools to effectively lead, manage, and influence others. Get connected with our community of practice to further your professional development at cultureroad.com. So Holly, you mentioned this term, and again, I know that you're not a medical expert in this field, but it's, I would love to just get kind of a lay person's definition of what is racialized trauma. Yeah, racialized trauma, in my understanding, is is a a type of trauma that's experienced uniquely by members of a group that's been oppressed. Yeah, and uh, sometimes it's referred to, or a similar concept is internalized oppression. Right, right. And I think the resource that I would again point to is Resma Menikin's book called My Grandmother's Hands, in which he talks a lot about trauma that gets passed down through generations within particular cultures. There's also a really powerful book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And I I think that that begins to offer texture and perspective on particular types of complex trauma that people could experience due to their membership in a group like that. I I think the other thing, I just the other day heard somebody on NPR, an author, um, uh, Asian American woman who wrote a book and I'm forgetting her name right now, apologies, but her book is called what I know in my bones. And she was diagnosed with complex trauma and began to think maybe this is a community thing. Yeah. And she went, she's a journalist. She went back and did research of her high school and kind of found, wow, we were all treated in these similar ways with incredible amounts of pressure. And like I said earlier, not everybody's going to develop PTSD because of that, but there is a shared experience yeah. that is characteristic of particular groups. It's so interesting when we talk about this, because I think about, you know, I, I wrote my, um, my master's thesis on internalized oppression, 
And at the time, we weren't really talking about trauma and specifically not racialized trauma. But when I think about the connection between the two, it's so incredibly clear to me how it is that even within specific racialized communities, we have these oppressive um, beliefs and practices that we hand down to each other, right? Because they were handed to us and they were coming as forms of oppression to us and we still handed them down because that's all we knew or because we'd internalized the fact that this is correct, correct or this is the right way to do it or the way that we know to do it. And so things like the way that we treat our children to be seen or not heard or some of the corporal punishment or some of the relationships and the ways that people enter into unhealthy often relationships with partners based on things that are not um, uh, really healthy ideas, but that seem like they're kind of protective categories of um, things that we're looking for in another person because of being in a racialized, oppressive situation. So I can really understand how that might play itself out in an interpersonal level. It's profound and it's deep. There's a lot. It, to there. there is a lot. One of the things that Resma Menikin talks about is uh, trauma contextualized in a person can start to look like a personality. Uh, trauma contextualized in a community can look like culture. Yes. And so what are the elements of what we think of as culture that are actually informed by generations of trauma? I love it. You know, so it's it's very deep and fascinating. And it's interesting because I've for many years as a person who studied culture a lot, I've also I've always thought um, and it haven't hasn't been with the same lens on trauma, but it's always been culture and oppression are not the exact same thing. Right. There's a lot of really amazing and beautiful things that cultures do and that they're meant to do. And there's also a lot of oppression that lives inside of every single culture. And it's quite possible to be in love with your culture without in love, being in love with some of the oppressive behaviors and tendencies and really having to decouple the oppression, right? But that's a lot of really complicated work because the same people that taught you the culture and the values and the love and the tradition and the beliefs also often taught you the oppression. But culture transmits. And so I, and this is again, where I kind of get excited about opportunity. It's, it's the same as, you know, wow, it's such a powerful thing. How do we undo it? Right. But then again, we do have agency. Exactly. We can create cultures. Exactly. And so, and I think for some of us who are in dominant group memberships, like as a white person, okay, there's a culture that I grew up in that has had a hand in perpetuating some things that I don't like. Right, right. So what do I do about that, right? And then I think, so there's a lot of, there's just a lot to it. Yeah. It's a lot to it. it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to get practical. As as, as impractical as that that person, but it's (laughs) it's impractical in in that it's really ridiculously important, but it's complicated. It's going to take a lot of ongoing kind of research and understanding and personal work. I think a lot of the kind of meditative and other healthy practices that are really focused on kind of going deep and well-being are helping people to really start to do more meaningful work around this important topic. But to flip it away from that for a moment and just get to the stuff that I think comprises our day-to-day work, right? The vast majority of our day-to-day work. It's people who are leaders and directors and managers who are saying, you know, I have people coming to me and telling me that they're experiencing trauma or I have people who are not performing, they're not producing. It's been a couple of years now that we've been going through this COVID thing. We have to get back up to our performance levels and our productivity levels. 
And you just said it, it's not my role or HR's role to know exactly how to diagnose and deal with trauma. What do I do? And how do I be kind of a trauma-informed leader and care about my organization and my people's well-being without feeling like I'm being dismissive, but also really helping make sure that we are focused on performance. I'd love any guidance that you have on like, how, how it is that managers and leaders can yeah. navigate this complexity? Yeah. I mean, managers and leaders are on the front lines of yeah. just, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's All unprecedented. It. Yeah. It's COVID. It's, you know, it's, it's unreal. Um, and I think that certainly, yes, when you have a, an employee with a medical issue, that is not the domain of management. That's the domain of HR, which would then, you know, refer to the AP or, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think, I, I, I guess there's no easy answer. Yeah. But I do think that one of the things that's helpful, and it's interesting you talk about meditation, because I think meditation is good for everybody. Yeah. Um, I, th- I did some research on this. It's tripled in the last three years, the number of people uh-huh. meditating. Many companies are offering apps like Headspace uh, to their employees. Just taking that mental break can be incredibly helpful to you as a manager. Yes. Because it's crazy. Yeah. There, the, the amount of pressure, the amount of work, the amount of competing priorities. Yeah. And then to feel like you've got somebody who is maybe at a very vulnerable, fragile state, you're on the one hand, what do I do to care about this person? On the other hand, I have a meeting with a client tomorrow. Right. You know, what do you do? And I think it sounds kind of basic, but it actually isn't. Yeah. It's, it's really get centered, learn um, some of those skills. Yeah. I, I think so that's, you know, day to day as managers, it's educating yourself really trying to cultivate that sense of compassion. It's hard. It's really, really hard work. I think organizations also have a big responsibility to give the kind of support that managers need to do that. So yes, meditation apps. Um, A lot of companies are hiring chief meditation officers. Aetna, Google, IBM, can't remember the others, but, and I did a search um, on a job site and there were like more than 25 chief meditation op- officer roles open Love it. and wellness. That's yeah. a big push right now. Yeah. So I think, yeah, a lot is changing. A lot is evolving. The other thing that struck me is how this kind of all the new information about trauma, everything that everybody's been going through with COVID has kind of parallel paths with the shift in understanding what is the purpose of corporations. In 2019, the Business Roundtable said it's not solely to um, benefit shareholders. It needs to benefit everybody. So that's fundamental. Yeah. And we've got a ways to go to figure that out and a lot of change management to do. Yeah. And again, day to day, what do you do? I think it's take a deep breath and do the best you can. (laughs) It's so interesting because I... You know, we, it's, I've been studying like the brain for many years. I'm so interested in how this works and just how we process information and what happens when, you know, we receive inputs and we process it through our own filters and then we feel it in our body and then we very, very quickly need to react. We need to say or do something and we're moving in and out of spaces like that constantly. All of us are, whether or not we're cognitively aware of it. And 
What that means is that if I have some trauma or something that I've had a difficult time with personally and I have a position of power and I might feel slightly kind of cortisoled up, right? My cortisol is slightly high. I feel a little kind of emotionally unstable. I feel torn. I feel a sense of urgency. I feel like I have too many competing priorities. Whatever it is that keeps us at that kind of cortisoled up level where my cortisol levels are slightly too high for me to be really strategic, for me to be really analytical, for me to be really problem solving and fully empathetic and present and aware, all of the things that meditation promotes, then it's really likely that if you come to me with a problem or with some need or with some emotional level of distress, what happens in humans is that emotion begets emotion, right? Your emotion and my emotion start bouncing off each other and it creates this vicious cycle and it's not really anybody's ill will. It's, to, it's just literally like the mirroring effect that yeah. happens in humans. And the tricky part is then both of us are now at heightened states of incompetence, yes. emotionally yes. speaking, yes. right? And interculturally yeah. speaking. And that actually creates a lot of the traumatic experiences yeah. or things that people are describing as traumatic experiences. The way that I hear it and... I hear this all the time. I can't tell you the number of times that I hear people say to me, especially BIPOC women say, these white women's tears are being weaponized against me. That's an exact quote oh, yeah. that I hear all the time, right? And a lot of it is exactly what I'm describing, right? So a, a, a BIPOC woman yep. goes to her manager who happens to be a white woman and says, this is what's going on with me. The white woman says, I had no idea, or I'm so frustrated, or I don't know how to talk to you, or every time I say anything, you blah, 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 and you're angry, and I'm not sure how to deal with it. And next thing you know, this escalation is happening that is literally just about these cortisol levels bouncing off each other. Nobody can hear the other person, and it turns into a flashpoint, Yeah. right? And then it gets captured as trauma. Right, or described yeah. as a t- described, yes. right, as a traumatic experience. Yeah. And by the way, both parties actually describe it, when they come to me at least, as traumatic yes. experiences. Absolutely. And then now we're trying to figure out, like, how do we navigate through this? Yeah. So I feel like that is, it. there's a lot of stuff there around identity and oppression oh, yeah. and systems and structures. But there's also just so much, like, fundamental stuff in there about just communication. Yeah. Like, just how humans communicate. Like, just... 101, this is how our brains are wired to receive yeah. and process information. And then when we're in concert with other humans, these are some of the ways in which that energy bounces around. And if we could just kind of slow down yeah. and kind of invest in learning and understanding that, not to prevent it from ever happening again, but to recognize it when it does and to realize in that moment when we're both like this, all cortisoled up, I like to say, that we at least have the wherewithal, or at least one of us, and especially if I'm in the position of power, I have the wherewithal to pause, right? To just like, we need to take a break here. We need to get our cortisol levels down until we can get to a place where we can find a different space to be in together. Um, And I feel like those, it doesn't even require super sophisticated understanding of trauma or of equity, diversity, and inclusion. It really is about understanding some of the ways in which human behavior patterns work or communication patterns work so that when we're in those situations, which it seems like people are in more and more lately, we at least know what the couple of things are that we can do to to pause and keep any more damage from yes. potentially happening. And I think part of that, absolutely. And I think part of that is recognizing that the way we were each 
socialized yes. to respond in a given situation is a is culture Absol- absolutely and so i love the phrase get curious not furious yeah <laughs> you know and i mean easier said than done especially when there's like a loaded history right right of you know just 400 years and all of this but it's, it's so much of our behavior is contextual right and i think we have to start to understand the impact of it on each other right and then also how why is this the only mechanism I have right. to express? Like, do I have other sort of avenues in my repertoire? Can I develop different ways to respond? Right. And it all comes back to you have to hit pause yep. you have in to order pause. to do that. And it's, it's funny. So I'm going to do a shameless plug here because in addition to things like meditation, which I've been practicing for decades and yoga and other kind of mindfulness practices and physical kind of ways of, because I absolutely believe that everything is connected. Yeah. And so things like, yoga are just as uh, just as meditative to me as actual kind of silent meditation absolutely right and needing to release and really finding ways to make sure that we're honoring all those parts of ourselves but also for people who really want to figure out how do we develop some of these sensibilities and awareness in advance of some of these difficult situations to to even invest actively in your own learning like we do with the inclusive managers toolkit at dja right we intentionally say and you have invested as you know, when you were in corporate spaces in your colleagues and managers doing this proactive learning and development so that they have the knowledge, the framework and some of the requisite kind of skills for pausing at the right moment, yeah. right? Before it escalates and also even trying ways to trying to find ways to ter- turn what might be a vicious cycle into a potential virtuous cycle, yes. right? Yes. Some of that curiosity, like tell me a little bit more about what's happening or that curiosity being turned inwardly. Yeah. Right. Start start off with this is about me getting curious about where I'm coming from and why it is that I'm reacting in this way, even before it is about me immediately jumping to inquire about your experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of really, really interesting stuff. We can go on and on. We can go on and on. (laughs) Okay, so I love, love, love the fact that you left us with so many great books and examples of resources. Thank you so much for doing that. What I'd also love is for our viewers to be able to learn a little bit more about how to get in touch with you. So I know that you have a website and a blog. Maybe you could one more time tell us how to find you. Sure, yes. Um, www.septariaconsulting, S-E-P-T-A-R-I-A. Uh, and hollybrittingham.com is the blog. Awesome. Holly, thank you so much. I, Thanks, Deanna. You, you and I, you know, we, we could go, go on, on forever. <laughs> We have so many interesting topics that we share kind of so much philosophy uh, philosophy around, but also we really adore each other. I really adore you. And I thank you so much for all your amazing collegiality and also your thought leadership. I feel like I always learn so much from you. Thank you. All right. That's it for us. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Culture Road podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning into the Culture Road podcast. We want to hear from you. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it on social media to let us know that you're listening. You can find us on Twitter at Dieta M. Jones. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Have a question or comment? Drop a note under this episode or email us at podcast at cultureroad.com. You might hear your commentary on a future episode. Until next time.